Hello and welcome to MedTech Monthly, brought to you by the staff of MedTech Insight. I'm managing editor Elizabeth Orr, and I'm here today with attorney and data science expert Bradley Merrill Thompson. Brad's been a regulatory attorney for more than 30 years. Some of you might recognize his name from his work with the Combination Products Coalition and other industry initiatives. In addition to his day job at Epstein Becker Green, he's recently turned his hand to data analysis earning a Master of Applied Data Science from the University of Michigan's School of Information in February 2022. And he's on the show today to talk about some research he did into the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Breakthrough Devices Program. The Breakthrough Devices Program is, of course, an FDA effort to get innovative devices to patients more quickly. The program was first launched as a pilot under a different name in 2011, and the final guidance came out in December 2018. The FDA's website touts that 693 devices have received the designation, of which 54 have been authorized for market. Brad used his own Python program to analyze publicly available data from OpenFDA. The analysis was published under the title Unpacking Averages, Assessing Whether FDA's Breakthrough Device Designation is Helpful on legal writings website J.D. Supra on August 3rd. And today, he's here with us to talk through what he found and what the significance might be. Brad, I'm happy to have you here with us. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Going back in time, when the Breakthrough Device slash Expedited Access Program was first announced, what was your opinion? I mean, did you have any concerns about it? Or? Well, I have to be honest with you. It'll probably sound like I was biased uh, in the analysis that I did, but my initial reaction to the program was a, was a negative one. It was, it was negative for a couple of reasons. First, as I read through the materials that described the program, there was really no commitment by FDA as to what they would do in exchange for a company applying for and being admitted to the program. Uh, They didn't commit to how much faster the review process would be. They didn't commit to making sure that the company would um, only be expected to meet the the least burdensome uh, evidentiary obligations. There just really wasn't much substance there in the way of FDA committing to do something for the company. But the other thing that bothered me, quite honestly, is that the program sort of positioned FDA as this um, almost consultant who would come in and work sort of side by side with uh, the company in order to move the development process forward. And that just runs counter to all of my experience with FDA. And and I'm not being at all, I hope, uh, mean in, in saying that. We all play the role we're responsible for playing, and FDA plays a very important role. Their role is protecting the American citizen. They are are the government. They are there to make sure that unsafe or ineffective products don't reach the market. And that's a very different role than sitting on the other side of the table where your job is to try to figure out how to get the best possible safe and effective devices to market in the quickest amount of time. And so while those two missions overlap, they're not identical. And FDA can be structurally far more conservative in its decision-making uh, than someone else would be. So so to have FDA sort of hyper-involved in the development process with that sort of acknowledged mindset, that was concerning to me. So much so, I'll be honest with you, I had a lot of clients who came in my door and said, you know, we, we want to be part of this breakthrough program, and I talked them out of it. I suggested to them that um, that the benefits were were dubious. But all that said, I hope I kept an open mind when I did the data analysis, and I tried to do it in a transparent way so that if I have a bias, the reader can can figure out maybe where I went wrong. So I, I tried to show, show my math, as it were, 
uh, to explain how I did it. You know, one of the things you talked about in your article in the analysis is that the program assumes that more contact with the FDA is better, whereas you usually tell your clients to go the other way. And you just referred to that as well. Can you sort of unpack that a little? Well, sure. So I'm, I'm used to sitting across the table with FDA where we're talking about, for example, the evidence that will be required for a submission, whether it's a 510K or a Genova or whatever it might be. And we might come in there with a proposal as to the kind of evidence that we want. And FDA inevitably takes the view uh, that uh, that they want more, that they want. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's natural, as I said, it's it's part of their job. But but they'll they'll say, you know, we think the clinical trial is is really underpowered. We'd like to see a lot more uh, subjects in it. We'd like to see a more uh, complex design where we've got additional controls that provide us, you know, even greater assurance. Uh, of safety and effectiveness, they'll just sort of pile on or add on to the evidence that um, will be ultimately required in order to uh, uh, get through the agency. So I've made it a habit, honestly, of trying to not involve FDA unless it's absolutely necessary because I know that I'll get that conservative advice. And I think if you talk to consultants across the industry, and I've talked to several, they will say if you make a good faith determination of what the clinical trial ought to look like and it's scientifically justified and, and you do all your homework and you go in to present it, inevitably you can get something through the agency review process with less data than if you went in right from the get-go and just said to FDA, well, what do you want? What do you want us to do? And have them sort of, when it's cheap and easy for them, uh, really specify a very burdensome uh, set of, uh, of evidentiary requirements. It's, um, there's, a, there's an art to getting something through the agency, and the agency isn't there to help you identify that quickest pathway. Sure. It's what you said. There are, you know, conflicting roles and conflicting interests in play here. And, you know, I think that's definitely an important thing for manufacturers to stay aware of. Anyhow, to turn to the breakthrough device designation itself, you know, the FDA released data about it last spring. And one of the things that I noticed and a lot of other people noticed was that the number of approvals and clearances seemed quite low compared to how many devices got the designation. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? I share that concern. And there really wasn't enough data in what was released for me to analyze what might be the root cause. But when you think about it, there's sort of two different phases here. There's the phase of pre-submission development where the company is working to develop the evidence, whether it's clinical trial data or bench trial or whatever it might be, in order to prove that its product works well enough, is safe and effective enough uh, to be cleared. And then there's the submission process itself, where you've you've written the submission, uh, you've sent it to FDA, and they're they're going through their review cycle. Somewhere along the line, a lot of products are uh, not making it through, and we don't have the data to know kind of where that problem is, whether it's in the pre-submission phase or the submission review phase. But the 54 out of 693 is really appallingly low um, because another graph that FDA provides is a timing graph that tells you in what fiscal years uh, these submissions came in. And they've been coming in since 2015, uh, but they've really been coming in in earnest since about 2019. In 2019, there were 110 submissions. If you think about it, that's three years ago, right? Uh, the end of fiscal 2019, we're just, this is early September. The end of September will be the end of fiscal year 2022. So yeah. at the end of, of three years ago, there were a whole bunch of these uh, submissions in the queue, uh, in the breakthrough program, and still only 54 at this juncture have gotten through it. So 
So they're dying. Either that or they're taking incredibly long, but I think more likely they're dying. And they're dying either because the technology maybe doesn't prove to work, although typically by the time you go to FDA, you've kind of proven that the technology works reasonably well. Maybe the business case doesn't pan out. Maybe investors, you know, don't keep the money flowing. But more typical, it's that you you work with FDA and you find out that their expectations are beyond uh, what you think is reasonable, beyond what your technology will will allow. And so that's really discouraging. And again, I've I've talked to my colleagues in the industry. It's, it's a it's a kind of close knit uh, close knit community. And uh, you know, the the prevailing view is a lot of products. Uh, struggle through the program where the same products not through the program will go through the FDA process. It's definitely a scary thing. I know there was hope they would make the review process for those devices quicker and more consistent, but it sounds like that is not the case just from what you're saying. Well, again, we, we really don't have any data. We have the high-level data that only 54 products have succeeded out of 693. We're sort of less left to guess what the cause is, but a reasonable person would look at that and say there's a problem. Is there any way that the program seems to differ across the different review pathways? You know, for example, PMA, de novo, 510K? Yeah, there are differences across those pathways. And one of the things that my blog post kind of focused on was the different review times between 510K and de novo, for example. And um, what I found was when I compared the review times of the 510K breakthrough devices with similar non-breakthrough devices, and when I say the word similar, uh, I'm allowed uh, by the data to look at at, uh, product codes. And so I can compare a breakthrough device in a given product code with other devices in that same product code. So they have the same general technology and intended use. And when I look at the review time, it's basically dead even. The breakthrough program review times are essentially identical to the review times for non-breakthrough products. And that's not very encouraging because you go through all this breakthrough uh, process and you, you expect an improvement. FDA promises an improvement and there isn't, a, there isn't an improvement. But in de novo, that experience is a little bit different. Uh, with the fresh data that FDA released about a month ago for, this, for the uh, third quarter of the fiscal year, uh, I calculated the improvement in review time for de novo products at about uh, 64 days over the average for all de novo products. So I can't really do it on an apples-to-apples basis because basically de novos are for first of a kind. So by definition, there aren't other products out there to which you can compare them. So I just compare it to the average of all first of a kind. And mm-hmm. in that respect, it shows an improvement. But Part of me thinks that that improvement isn't so much based on a, on a quicker review, a quicker work ethic, effort, I should say, but rather the fact that maybe the agency spent enough time working with the company in the pre-submission phase that they had gotten sort of up the educational curve, had learned about the product, had learned about the studies and so forth, so that naturally the review could uh, proceed a little bit uh, quicker. To me, you know, that's still kind of the the, on, the only reason I'm focusing on review time is because it's the only thing I have data on. The right. bigger picture and the thing that we don't have data on is the development time. And that's where I'm scared that um, that the breakthrough program actually suffers. You actually takes you longer to get through the pre-submission phase for a breakthrough rather than a non-breakthrough. You, know, you were pointing out to me earlier there's some difference between different types of devices, you know, like cardiac versus neuro. Mm-hmm. 
neurological and so on. Can you talk through that? Because I thought that was also sure. interesting. I sent over to you, and I think maybe you're able to put it um, somehow in connection with this with this blog post yes. for people to see. Yes, it'll be below the yeah on our website. It'll be below the um, podcast. Yeah. So, so what I did is FDA presented on its website the breakdown of the different uh, clinical types of devices that entered uh, the breakthrough designation program. And they have, for example, cardiovascular 163 as the most popular clinical area, neuro- neurology uh, as the second most popular with 126 and so forth. And I thought, well, that's at the that's what goes into the funnel, what comes out of the funnel. So I did the exact same analysis of the 50 four, actually, I only did 52 because I focused on CDRH. Uh, two, two were CBER devices and right. 52 were CDRH devices. Um, I, took the, I took the CDRH devices and I created the exact same bar chart, and it showed that neurology was actually the most successful. Those products coming out of the pipeline uh, came out at a higher rate, and cardiovascular was second. And so cardiovascular you know, went from 163 entered uh, the breakthrough program to eight have exited the breakthrough program, have actually been authorized by FDA. Well, that's a huge differential, 163 entering the program, a a grand total of eight uh, being authorized out of the program. And there's a couple like that. Urology didn't fare as well as it should have based on the number that were going into the program. And uh, at the other end of the spectrum, pathology devices seem to do a little bit better in getting authorization based on the on the numbers going in versus the numbers coming out. So so different different areas had different success rates. I would note that the cardiovascular products were by and large PMA devices. They were higher risk PMA devices where the neurology and orthopedics and so forth were uh, either 510K or de novo. So they they were going different routes uh, as well. But I, I found that interesting. It's either encouraging or discouraging, depending on what, what particular clinical area you're in. Yeah, yeah, it depends what product you're making. So those are two of your major findings. What else sort of stood out to you about the data that the FDA has released so far? You, you, you just said, you know, what stood out about the data that have released so far. One of the things that bothered me is the fact that there is additional data that would be very useful that FDA hasn't released. Well, the data I wish they would release, and I'm, I'm planting the seed uh, with you, because you and the media have a much better chance of getting FDA to release data than, than just a plain old private citizen like me. FDA will respond to a FOIA request from a guy like me uh, about the time uh, an oak tree is growing over my grave. It would be very important for FDA to release data on when the first encounter occurs between an applicant uh, and the FDA. And, And so they have data on when the breakthrough status was requested and when it was granted, and they could easily release that. And then on the non-breakthrough products, uh, you know, they have a very well-developed pre-submission meeting process, a QSUB process, where folks request a meeting, they go in with their questions, they get their questions answered, and then either they'll ask for another meeting down the road or they'll, they'll go to a submission or not. But, but it's easy to tie those data together. And if we had those data, we could tell uh, amazing insights uh, into um, the time that it takes 
uh, for companies to develop uh, the data necessary to submit to FDA. Now, I don't want to overstate it because people consult FDA at different phases, right? Some will consult FDA real early. Some will consult FDA late. I get that. But there's an average, you know, across all those. It's a meaningful average. And, you know, there's an average across the breakthrough devices. So, you know, we could handle the data responsibly and draw, you know, only appropriate conclusions from it. But boy, if you could get FDA to release data on that, that would be huge for for the industry. It'd be huge for, frankly, patients and doctors and others who care about the FDA process because it would really give us insight into how long the development process works. But that's that's my big area of concern is not knowing how long that development process takes and whether it's actually substantially longer for breakthrough products than it is for non-breakthrough products. That has definitely planned to see. And I'll see what I can do about that because that is a really interesting question. So, but if a developer does qualify for a breakthrough designation, what advice would you give them? Well, as I, I said, I have to confess, even before I had the data, I was discouraging people from pursuing the program. I think now that I have the data, I would definitely discourage anyone who has the possibility of filing a 510K instead of a de novo, uh, I would discourage them from the program because if you can fit in the 510K process, you really don't even need that much in the way of consultations with FDA because it means you have a predicate device and you can look and see what the what the roadmap looked like for that company and you can kind of figure out what you need to do and proceed. In the de novo, you know, as I said, it's about a 64-day advantage in terms of the review cycle. That review cycle has to be viewed in the context of the development cycle, and we don't have data on that. So it kind of depends on just how difficult or problematic I think the questions are going to be that need to be answered. If I think we can construct a reasonable case for how to put it together, I I think I'd still try and avoid the breakthrough without more compelling evidence that the breakthrough program actually offers an advantage. But, you know, I would ultimately sort of lay it out there and say it's very uncertain. And even within the program, and I tried to make this point a couple of times in the blog post, the experience of companies is really uneven. Some go through really quickly, some go through really slowly. And the, the blog post really only looks at averages. It doesn't really account for all that variability. But for sure. some companies, the breakthrough program could be absolutely horrible. So I just need to have that conversation with clients. And ultimately, it's their choice as to whether they want to do it. I will say that some clients are persuaded that there's a marketing advantage to being in the FDA breakthrough program. And that may well justify it. When I say marketing, really what I'm talking about is is um, their ability to raise capital from, from private equity and others. They think that if they're in the breakthrough program, it's kind of a badge of honor and that, and that uh, venture capital folks and others will be more readily interested in investing in, the, in a company that makes a breakthrough product. So, so they really aren't motivated by the FDA benefit. If any, they're motivated by that marketing benefit. And that may or may not be true. I, I don't have data to suggest whether it is or not. I mean, it's definitely something they mention anytime they send out a press release about, you know, a funding round. They definitely mention that they have breakthrough designation. So, actually, yeah, they clearly I don't know believe it actually helps. <laughs> Do you think there are any changes the FDA could make so that breakthrough program worked better for industry? Or as I said, one of the things that I initially reacted to when I first looked at the program was the lack of a commitment. And there are certain things FDA could do to firm up its commitment. On the development side, there's not a lot they can say other than sort of reaffirm the overarching objective of identifying the least burdensome. I would hope they're doing that, but it'd be helpful if they said it out loud. 
In terms of the review process, in the context of user fees, FDA has made commitments as to average target goals for reviews. They could do something similar for the breakthrough program and say, you know, our average goal instead of 90 days for a, for a 510K is 60 days. Honestly, I don't think they want to do that. I don't think they want to be that fast. I don't think they want to. I don't think they want to make a commitment. But but if they were serious about the program, making some sort of commitment along those lines would be would be beneficial. But the thing that I would find even more valuable, again, I'm just going to sound like a nerd, and I and I am, making more data available to the public to evaluate the merits of the program would be hugely advantageous. And you might say, well, what what data would that be? Well, one, it would be the data I, I, I mentioned a moment ago, data on first encounters, uh, whether it's an application for a breakthrough or whether it's a, a pre-submission meeting on a non-breakthrough. But the other thing they could do uh, very easily is at the end of the process, give the, uh, the medical advice company a survey for them to fill out, completely anonymous. It'd be a way, there'd be a way to do it where, where they couldn't identify who answered the survey because um, companies would always be worried that, that they don't want to anger anyone at FDA with a criticism. But the sure. survey could be things like, you know, do you think that overall the program moderated the amount of evidence? Do you think overall that the development cycle was shorter given the FDA interaction? Do you think, you know, the data requests were reasonable or whatever it might be? And then at the end, you know, on an anonymized basis uh, annually, you know, release the experience of the companies that go through it. To me, that's hugely helpful because there you get right from the horse's mouth on an aggregate basis the experience with the program, and it'd be helpful to me. I would think it'd be helpful to FDA in deciding whether they're doing the program the way they want to do the program. But there's no data collection effort by FDA, and so that's that's a disappointment. But that would be a very easy way to really assess the, the program from everyone's standpoint. And then finally, if the program actually offers an advantage, I haven't complained about this because I, I'm not sure the program is advantageous, but if it does get to the point where it's advantageous, I think they need to tighten up the criteria for what constitutes a breakthrough device. Right now, the criteria are really subjective, and the fear is that it's you know kind of anyone who's a good friend of FDA would get admitted. Those who FDA doesn't like so much might not get admitted, and there's really no accountability around that. The criteria say it has to be a serious or life-threatening disease. That's relatively objective, but the other part, you know, that it's breakthrough or whatever, is a very loosely articulated standard. If it really did amount to a substantial savings, that'd be a big competitive dynamic for a company. And they shouldn't just be handing that out willy-nilly. It really ought to be tightened if, it, if, this, is a, uh, if this program is advantageous. That's one of the things that sort of killed um, Medicare coverage for breakthrough technologies, wasn't it? Like one of the things CMS said when it was reviewing that was, you know, we have no way of knowing how much money this will be because so many devices are being admitted into this program. If I were CMS, that's how I would react to it. I understand why industry wants these devices covered. I understand the patient benefits, but I can also see where CMS is coming from on that, given the point you just made that the criteria aren't terribly clear. Right. And they really have a completely different purpose. I mean, you know, when it gets through FDA, it's considered safe and effective, but that doesn't mean that, that, that CMS wants to make access to it widely available. There are other factors that go into place. And You made some recommendations about what the FDA could do, but do you think there's anything the FDA is going to do? Like, do you think the FDA sees any of the things around the low clearance rates and around the relatively similar timelines? Do you think the FDA would say any of those things are a problem? Honestly, I would be speculating, but that's also revealing. I've never heard anyone at FDA say 
that they're concerned about these things. Now, maybe they are and they just haven't publicly said it. That's possible. But the fact that they haven't publicly said we want to examine these things and we want to make sure that the program is advantageous, I mean, to me, that means that they're not very motivated to improve the program. I think it, I think it's serving FDA's purpose fine um, the way it is. And the only reason they would change it is if they had concern that companies might not be interested in pursuing it because it's not advantageous. And, and I think FDA you know, can sort of sit back a little bit with self-confidence and say, well, we're the only game in town. So they either do the breakthrough or they do the regular. And we frankly don't care which they do. Uh, well, that was most of what I wanted to talk to you about. You know, Thank you so much for doing this analysis. I think it could be the start of really fruitful conversation and some really interesting information about the inner workings of the FDA on this specific program. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I just wanted to thank you for inviting me to talk about it. It is an important program. I mean, the purpose of it is very important, which is to really minimize the time delay uh, of getting important therapies to patients who are waiting. And that's a common mission between the industry and FDA. We start with that common mission, which is a, which is a very good thing. Um, I'm just not sure FDA looks at the program through industry's eyes to really evaluate whether it's accomplishing that, and I wish they would. And I'm also kind of excited uh, about the possibility that you're you're willing to think about uh, requesting that additional data because FDA, if they shared data and when those first encounters occurred, would just give us all sorts of insights into how the development process looks. And that's really, at the end of the day, far more important than the review time itself. We Companies spend far more time in development than they do waiting for FDA review. And so getting, getting a handle on that and seeing the trends and how it varies from clinical area to clinical area, that would just be immensely helpful. Thank you so much, Brad. It's been great to have you. Listeners, you can follow Breakthrough Device News online now at medtechinsight.com. And for all the latest medtech policy and regulation news and analysis, you can follow us on Twitter on medtech underscore insight. Also on Twitter, I'm at Elizabeth J. Orr, and our guest Bradley is at Bradley Merrill T. You can find MedTech Monthly and other Sightline Pharma podcasts on your podcast platform of choice, including SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. For now, thanks for listening.